Welcome back to the Lion Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. This is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's fantastic episode was with the beautiful Dr. Amishi Ja. She's a professor of psychology at the University of Miami. She serves as the director of contemplative neuroscience for the Mindfulness Research and Practice Initiative, which she co-founded in 2010. She received her PhD from the University of California, Davis, and postdoctoral training at the Brain Imaging and Analysis Center at Duke University. Dr. Jaw's work has been featured in NATO, the World Economic Forum, and the Pentagon. She has received coverage in the New York Times, NPR, Time, Forbes, and more. Dr. Amishi Ja is no slouch in the world of neuroscience, mindfulness, meditation and what the heck is going on inside these noggins of ours and how our thoughts feelings and emotions inform the production of the rest of our physiology in this conversation i'm just so grateful to get to be able to have conversations like this one because she is one of the primary pioneers in this conversation she's been researching mindfulness since before it was cool and she is one of the ogs so i'm very excited to get to share this with y'all and i hope you guys absolutely dig it before we get started i wanted to thank you guys for leaving reviews for this podcast it helps let the algorithmic gods know that people are listening to this and helps get the message out so i want to thank erica bushwell erica bushwell says awesome podcast aaron host of the Align podcast highlights all aspects of nutrition and more in this can't miss podcast the host and expert guests offer insightful advice and information that is helpful to anyone that listens thank you so much erica bushwell for tuning in and taking the 22 seconds to leave a review. It is meaningful and I appreciate it. I also want to take a moment and thank our sponsor, Element, for supporting this podcast. If you struggle to drink enough water daily, I have the solution. Add a packet of Element into your water and sip on throughout the day. Element is an electrolyte powder that is absolutely delicious and contains zero sugar or artificial sweeteners, unlike most flavored drink powders. Both sugar and artificial sweeteners are going to cause inflammation, and because of that, I don't include them in my diet. But I do like adding some flavor in my water to encourage me to drink more. Plus, it's just delicious. So it keeps my electrolyte levels in balance, which in turn helps my muscle recovery slash soreness after a workout. And guess what? You can try Element absolutely free. You can receive a free Element sample pack, including eight packets, two citrus, two raspberry, two orange, unflavored by heading over to drinklmnt.com slash align. Still is not available on the regular website, so go to drinklmnt.com forward slash align. You can get yourself a free sampler pack of LMNT. I really love this stuff. I genuinely drink it every single day. I have put a, a packet of it in my water before I go to the gym literally every day. I dig the stuff. I love Rob Wolf, the founder. I trust the sourcing of the product. I think it's great. Get yourself a free sample pack over at drinklmnt.com slash So Let's get into this conversation for the first time with the powerful, inspiring Dr. Amishi Ja. So you're a you're a, a Pennsylvanian kind of sort of. You went to university in Pennsylvania, at least. I lived there for ten years. Yeah, that's my. I grew up in Lancaster, Amish country. Oh, you did? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you're used to horse buggies. I'm around. I'm used to horse buggies around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was a professor at Penn for a decade. 
of neuroscience. What were you teaching? Yeah. Right. Cognitive neuroscience. What was it that got you into that originally? I feel like it's such a, a sexy subject and title to say I'm a neuroscientist. I feel like that was that was my dream for a while. I, I <laughs> fell short, obviously, but that's that's that was something that I'm like I would love to have that on a business card, like neuroscientist. Anyway, you really put it anywhere on the card. Wow. Um, no, I mean, it was really just, I thought I was going to be a medical doctor for a long time growing up. There was just one big problem, which is I didn't like being in hospitals at all. And I lucked out that one of my kind of candy striper rotations was in a brain injury unit. And that was it. That was like, it changed my whole orientation toward what was interesting to me, meeting people that were actually changing their own brains through their therapy therapeutic process and people that couldn't move at all, being able to move their hands and limbs. It was exciting to me to think that there's this thing that we can we can reprogram through our own experience and behavior. Mm. And what was it about that specifically? Was there anything in relation to you in particular that you wanted to reprogram or was it just a, a novel? No, at that point, it was just an amazing aspect of this very complex structure that we happen to carry around. I was always interested in psychology. And now that I look back on it, like, you know, I've been talking to more people about this, my personal history. When I was in 10th grade or something, I took courses at the University of, of Chicago in like moral psychology. And I can't believe my mother was kind enough to drive me to Hyde Park every weekend. But I was just always interested in, in sort of consciousness and psychology. So the brain piece just really fit. It was like, okay, this is the route by which these really amazing processes emerge. So at that point, it wasn't really regarding changing my own brain. It came in later in my life, but initially it was just a curiosity. I, something I've asked many folks in the past that come from like a neuroscience background or mindfulness background in general is what is your working definition of the mind and has it shifted over the years that you've been studying the concept? It's a great question. My definition of the mind. Wow. I don't think I'm going to be all that articulate regarding this. So I think that it's it's really regarding the contingent nature of processing mm -hmm. and that part, the contingent part, right? So that there's these processes that happen. There's some mystery regarding how it goes from neurons firing to networks functioning together to the emergence of the phenomenology of our moment-to-moment -moment conscious experience. It's still, to me, a mystery that I, I love that part of it. The part that I think probably is, has shifted from the perspective of learning about contemplative practice is really understanding what moment-to-moment -moment contingencies are. And maybe I'm sidestepping your question, but for example, when you start understanding that you can pay attention and actually experience your life at a more granular temporal scale, like the actual ebb and flow of your thoughts, your emotions, your conscious experience, as a scientist, you get really like, oh my gosh, our time scale is so off. Like we're looking, when we look at things like functional MRI, and which is essentially the gold standard right now of how we're going to understand the brain in an alive functioning human, we're looking at blood flow. We're not even looking at neural activity directly. Yeah. So we're sampling at a rate of one to three seconds. But when you actually look at what's going on, even within the course of a second, using other methods like brainwave recordings, for example, there's at least 20 distinct states that can emerge over the course of a second that you can see in the neural activity. So it wakes you up to the realities of how much we don't know regarding this thing you asked me about, the mind or brain. But it's expanded my respect for how much we don't know, including the big questions like, what is consciousness? Is the brain the factory for consciousness or the antenna for consciousness? Those big questions, I would say I'm still open. What would you, how, how would you define the brain and the, and the function of the brain? 
Because I feel like... Well, the, the brain is easier, right? It's actually the set of structures and processes that are at play moment to moment within, within this handy casing we call the skull. I don't find that problematic. I probably find consciousness a little bit more problematic because we're getting a handle on it, but we have a long way to go in terms of actually understanding what the heck it is. How dependent or interdependent is the brain in relation to the rest of the body? You know, so if you look at the skin, you know, they both are derived from the same dermal layer from an embryological perspective. And then there's- The brain and the body are highly, not even, I would say, you can't even say linked. They are the same. Of course. They're the same. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in some sense, you know, your fingertips are your brain, your, the ends of your eyeballs are your brain. So, I mean, obviously there's specific distinctions that we make with regard to peripheral and central functioning, central nervous system, peripheral nervous system, but this is all highly interconnected, highly dynamic and interdependent with regard to moment to moment contingencies. So it's a complex system. Yeah. I feel like there's a metaphysical lens that you could perceive the body and then when you start using terms like mind or mindfulness, suddenly it, it just jumps into that like quantum reality. But uh, I wonder how much of a limitation. Say more. Wait, wait, I'm not sure I follow you. Say more. So we have so we so we have like these deductive representations of the body. You know, you break down the, the the brain exists in the vacuum, and then the skin, and then the organs, and the liver, and the heart, and you know, and then science comes up with the gut-brain access, and then maybe the gut-brain-skin access, and we start to create these connections when ultimately the body has no idea what the hell we're talking you know, and so, but then when you jump into the to the the mind realm, then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, whoa hold on, now it's like a different game in a way. But I, I wonder if perhaps that the processing tools that we've learned or gathered in in Western culture is almost like a a limitation to be able to have a have a broader conversation of what the mind is because we come from a deductive space like that's where our mind is set in elementary school middle school college it's deduce 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 that's that's western medicine that's allopathic medicine that's science and then we try to start to stumble into these these bigger conversations and i think it's great to have those that linear structure and then the deduction and, and it works really well for a lot of things but it's there's a, there's an interesting jump where you come into mind you're like oh like do we even have the tools to really perceive that and if and if we if we don't how do we gather the tools or maybe you know does it even matter this is really, this is, this is a fun, fun, fun space that you're talking about. And I would say just at the very concrete level, thankfully, I think we're moving in a better direction to understand the interconnected, interdependent nature of things. And the, the parsing of things has to be undone. And even if you think about, in particular, brain, let's just talk about the brain. So when I was in grad school, before really fMRI was a thing, which is, gosh, <laughs> that's not that long ago, when we learned about different functions, it was literally like different brain parts did different things. And I was so funny when my daughter was probably, I don't remember, four or five years old, she came to the lab one day and I had one of those plastic gimmicky brain models that I was used to use for demos in class. And I'm busy doing something. So she's on the floor playing with this thing, taking it apart. And then all of a sudden she would raise up her little hand and say, what does this do? And I'd say, that lets you see. And then what does this do? This lets you hear. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm doing the exact thing that my training gave me that I had to realized was so primitive and wrong. And so at some point I, I, I stopped what I was doing. I got down on the floor with her and I actually tried to explain to her really how the brain works. And I, she happened to be a gymnast. So I was like, okay, well, what do you, what body part do you need to do a cartwheel? And she was so cute. And she's just like, well, you, you need your hand, but you need your arm. And like, she's talking me through the whole thing. And I was like, okay, well, what do you have to do with these body parts? Well, they have to go in the right order or else you're not going to do a, a very good 
cartwheel. And I was like, the brain is just like that. All these different pieces, they have to talk to each other and they have to work together in this manner that allows them to talk at the right time or else we don't get to do things like see or hear. And even as like a five-year-old, she understood that. And I'm like, if we had been taught this way of understanding the brain, I think a lot of different kinds of discoveries would have happened. I'm just bringing that up because, you know, as a criticism of my own field, that's only recently that even with functional MRI, where we can look at the entirety of the brain, that we've un- we can understand that it's functional brain networks. It's networks that are doing things and networks that are actually battling things moment by moment for us to have the phenomenal experience that we're having. And I think people can understand that. Most of us can get it. Like, oh yeah, okay, I, I can see that. It's almost like a subway map where you've got, you know, two trains can't be on the same track going in the opposite direction. Like there has to be some order to it and some coordination for these kinds of things to occur. And the same is, is true for the brain. So I don't know if that gets at your, your question, but I'm certainly entirely sympathetic to the view that parsing and, you know, slicing and dicing is not the, the correct way that things actually happen. And it's not even appropriate to have our understanding around that conceptualization. But perhaps it's a necessary step to get to a broader understanding. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I think it's, e- it's easy for especially like the new age community to damn all things that are western and allopathic and linear and it's too strict and too rigid it's like well it's you know yin yang light dark you know they, exactly. they, they both balance each other and so to have yeah. that containment even- is valuable to be able to communicate but then also but if you are just you stop at the containment then you might miss like the magic yeah i like that way of, of thinking about it and even going back to that example with my daughter every function that I ascribed to each of those little pieces she was holding up is correct. If you had brain damage or you had a stroke or a lesion in that part of the brain, you couldn't see or you couldn't hear, or you couldn't think. So there's truth in that too. It's just the incomplete truth. It doesn't work alone. I wonder what your perception is on where uh, memory exists in the body. How does that question hit you? Like where is memory? Is memory a fractal? Is it, exi- is it distributed throughout the brain is distributed throughout the body. How does one explain when they're going to say some body work session, you know, and all of a sudden they start having these various episodic memories start, start coming through and now I'm weeping and now I had this purging experience and now I feel lighter and my mind is more clear. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the first thing I'd say is absolutely the embodiment aspect of any cognitive or conceptual memory we might have or thought we might have, et cetera, is, is real. And I think that's where, that's the eye-opening experience for many people when they're engaging in something like a body scan, for example. It's like, there's so much information here that I've been missing that I've had no idea could was information and useful information. So I mean, separate from the kind of cathartic experience that you're talking about, just in terms of practical functioning. If I meet somebody and all of a sudden for not really any conscious reason, I have a little bit of tightness in my stomach or they make me uncomfortable and I can feel it at certain tension points I'm holding in my body and I pay attention to that, that could be very useful information. You know, And we know, for example, that uh, the body does remember very interesting, the, the body and sort of the emotional landscape can re- remember things that we may not consciously remember. So these early experiments of people that have been, you know, they're in some kind of a, a game scenario in an experimental context and different individuals they're interacting with, some cheat them, like they take their money and they say they're one thing or another. And then later on, at the end of the experiment, when they've been doing a whole bunch of stuff intervening, they might show them faces of these people and just 
how trustworthy is this person or how not even not even a question related to the cheating let's say just how much do you like this person and they can start seeing that they can't explain why they might not have even understood what had occurred before but it changes the nature of how they approach them differently so the constellation of our experience whether it's we think we're making decisions and the emotional system can modulate that or we think we're we're just our mind but our body is completely um aligned with that experience i don't think most of us are awake to most of that most of the time, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. How is how is your work in this field? Because you've you've been focusing on the field of mindfulness, which you know essentially before it was a, a field to focus on. I, I wonder how your experience, how has that changed you over the years? Is there any definitive? Oh, definitely, it's changed me a lot. I mean, I would say that the whole reason I the 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 need to go in this direction, and to be completely honest with you. I would say I was a real skeptic regarding any of this stuff, like anything mindfulness related. I thought it was probably not real. I couldn't point to it. I had a real cultural chip on my shoulder regarding it because I felt like, and especially from uh, Indian culture, there's a lot of sexism in the culture. And I almost was like, no, nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going in that direction. I'm not interested. But I also had a big problem within my own sort of life, which was I was more of a stress case than I thought and was experiencing a lot of crises with regard to my own attention. I couldn't keep my mind focused. I wasn't able to be in the here and the now. And it was affecting my ability to do everything in my life, including being a parent. And when I looked to my own field, when I looked to the field of attention research, I could not find any answers, which is what opened me up to like, okay, well, this is weird. This thing that you think you should be able to learn about, just about distractibility. How do we solve it? You know, thinking it's some simple problem, not the one of the major human conundrums. And then a colleague telling me about mindfulness and then opening myself up to even practicing what was really fun and really interesting to me is like, oh my goodness, this is why some of these practices have been around for thousands of years, because they're speaking to this fundamental lack of peace we can experience in our lives and they're offering a path to experiencing it. So in terms of my own work, it was such an interesting kind of revelation, like, oh my gosh, there's there's another way. There's another way to do all of this stuff. And paying attention in this particular way is different than anything that I had studied. So it fundamentally changed me in terms of the way I approach my life, frankly. <laughs> I was not phoning it in. I was really connected. And that meant being connected to the pain. It meant connected to the fear. It meant connected more to the joy that I wanted to experience. And it was a categorical shift. How do you connect to the pain? And what's the value in that been? What does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah. So for example, what typically, I mean, it was interesting. First, I was completely oblivious to going back to the body. One of my wake up calls is that I realized like I had lost feeling in my teeth from grinding. And I had no awareness of this at all. So it was a, I was constantly in physical jaw pain and I had no idea like, oh, I'm doing this thing and that's a problem. And what does it mean? Not aware at all. So that was the first thing is it brings an awareness of what we're actually doing moment by moment that might even be an unconscious thing we're doing. But let's just talk about pain in the emotional sense for a second and how I would say it, it has helped me and helps me guide other people on what to do in, in our research studies with groups like, you know, firefighters and first respond, other kinds of first responders and athletes, et cetera. The kind of default way of orienting to pain is to, if you're aware of it, to maybe deny it or suppress it or try to fix it. So to take some kind of action to shift the content so that it's not problematic. And the shift that happened with mindfulness training is like the existence of this actual experience doesn't need to require the next thing I do. Like there can be pain and it doesn't mean you have to deny or suppress it. 
there's another way you can orient to it, which is accept and allow. And the difference that it made as, as an attention researcher is that orienting to difficult emotions in that way allows you to have more ownership over your attention. It doesn't hijack you so that every moment you're trying to either push this thing away or you're paying too much attention to it so that you can't get on with your life. You know, recently with, uh, with one of the ways I would describe it is that my son, my son just left for college like a couple of years ago. And when he left, I, it was like this weird pain of like nothing I'd experienced before, like just sadness and missing him. And, you know, people talk about this emptiness thing, but it was like, I didn't expect to feel this much discomfort around it. And it was a weird feeling because it couldn't be otherwise. I didn't want him to come home because I was unhappy, but it kept creeping in where all day long, I was, so whatever I do, I'd kind of feel a little rush of sadness come in. And even in my practice, when I was actually pr- doing a mindfulness practice in my, my daily routine, it kept coming up. And finally, I just said, okay, this is, we're not doing this anymore. This is going to be the focus of my meditation. And I allowed myself to have the difficult emotion well up. And then I just was there for it. I was I wasn't touching it at all. I just allowed it to be present, flooding my body, flooding my mind, and almost befriending myself as if it was a good friend going through some kind of pain. And it changed the the way my day went. Essentially, it didn't keep creeping in. And when it would come in, it was softer. And I could say, yeah, here you are. You're here too. So that way of orienting to difficulty is just such a useful tool that I would have never learned about if it weren't for this kind of practice. Yeah. It seems like a big thing is renegotiating your relationship to judgment. You know, so maybe not you, but I think people in general or me. So coming to that place of having a sensation or experience or a feeling and seeing it as, as information and being able to be with the information as opposed to identifying with it or judging it as I'm losing. Oh, I feel depressed. I feel, you know, any of this sensation that means I'm a loser. It means I'm you know separate from the tribe. Now there's more disconnect and it just goes through this spiral. But to, there's, I think there's an interesting balance between being honest with renegotiating that, that judgment. And then there's a, the other side of the spectrum where you might it might seem like that on the outside, but in fact, you're actually kind of venturing more into disassociation. And so, you know, I wonder if, is that something that you, that you've observed at all? Did I explain that? Did I explain that reasonably? Yeah, say the second part about the disassociation. I wasn't So it's like releasing attachment. You know, that's a thing that's taught in every meditation class or yoga class, but still deeply being with the experience and acknowledging the experience and being completely present with the experience. I think disassociation can oftentimes masquerade as not attachment. Ah, okay, gotcha. Yeah, in some sense, it's a denial of what's actually occurring, appearing like you're you're cool with it or yeah. you're, you're separate. Like positive it. positive vibes only. You know, I, 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 yes, I, yeah. I've heard, I've heard something that you uh, have mentioned um, is if you're in a high stress situation, it can be more. It can bring more stress and be almost like it can be exhausting to try to put on you know a smiling face and try to come back into like a good mood and like you know sometimes just not losing the battle of attrition is a win, you know? Exactly. You know, this is, we know this from our own data, looking at uh, pre-deployment soldiers and them being taught positivity. And it's like, okay, well, you're probably not going to benefit in terms of protecting your attention. And unfortunately, that's exactly what we saw. Um, and I kept seeing this, this sort of pattern of positive, this desire for positivity, even when the circumstances were quite high stress, high demand, like even at the beginning of the pandemic, like people don't know what's going on. They don't know how long they were going to wait be away from work or how life is going to be disrupted. And then still think saying things like, I got to crush it. And I was like, maybe don't crush it. Maybe just be, 
Like it's adding, adding a level of expectation and demand when your resources are likely to be much more depleted. And so that's why we think that positivity can be problematic under low, uh, under high stress circumstances, because attention, this precious brain's resource that you need in order to reframe and reappraise is less available to you if it's actually being used in the service of dealing with the demanding circumstances. So you don't have that extra capacity to use to see things differently right now. And a better approach in that kind of depleted state maybe to just allow instead of trying to fix. So is that allowing? Is that the path towards getting into those deeper, more Im- Im- implicit parts of ourselves? Because I, I feel like the analogy that makes sense in my mind is that, you know, our consciousness is kind of like an iceberg and most of us are riding at that tip of the iceberg, you know, and we kind of assume that that, that very small little tip is like the boss and that's the everything. But then there's this deeper subconscious submerged aspect of ourselves that in fact is running the show and has been for, you know, for probably the entirety of your life. You know, is there, do you have, one, do you uh, agree with that? And then the second part would be, how does one start to access that deeper implicit part to maybe start to change the the deeper wiring of the way that we think and the decisions that we make? Yeah, I guess my, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I guess my goals are much more humble mm. <laughs> because it's more like, I don't know if there's a deeper iceberg, but I know there's a lot of stuff I'm not aware of right now. I know that I, in my own mind, things are happening that I'm not paying attention to. Even my distractibility, uh, even body sensation. So I, my humble goal would be get more out of this moment so that have more awareness of what is going on right now. And the more we can bring into our present moment awareness, the more choices we can make based on that information. Um, I don't know if it's the case that implicit biases and looking at them is going to change anything about them. In fact, I would say probably not. I would say just seeing your bias won't probably be enough to change the way you orient. But cultivating the cognitive control, the attentional control to say, this is not the way I choose to operate. So let's say, you know, for example, some person in a company is made aware or probably has some indication that they are very sexist, just for example. But they know the principles of the company are you know, do not discriminate based on this. And they have that kind of ethical orientation of like, I don't want to be sexist. That's like not the right way to be. People should, you know, so just knowing you have these tendencies and saying, yes, they're present is not going to allow you to overcome. But having that at the front of your mind, in fact, I would say putting it in your working memory is another brain system that I study and saying the way that I'm going to conduct myself in my decision-making is going to be from a point of view where I'm going to be aware of these tendencies and I'm not going to allow it. I'm going to actually look at things much more carefully. That's a different approach. It's saying, I don't really care if there is implicit bias. Explicitly, this is what's going to occur. So I guess that's sort of my my take on it is, is there's a lot we can do even with what we can more easily access. I love that. And how, because I think sometimes a person, you know, like me can get lost in the weeds of, you know, some grand philosophical meandering. And then you're like, well, I'm just, I'm just lost and, you know, spinning, spinning my wheels. Um, and I, I, it's good to bring it up to, to kind of challenge conventional thinking. Everything that I know from the, the work that we do, et cetera, is going down the journey of trying to uncover everything implicit about you is, it may not be useful. Instead, focus on the ethical framing of how you would like to orient your life and make the commitment to have the cognitive resources to do that every moment that you can. That's like, I mean, you might get more of this in Florida than, where did you live before Pennsylvania? Where'd you grow up? Oh, I, well, I've lived everywhere. I was in California before that, oh, North good. Carolina. I grew up in Chicago. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, okay. So probably less in Chicago, more in California. I don't know about North Carolina. But 
being around circles of people that are perpetually doing the work and they're just they're never not doing the work like every time you talk to him it's always this deep sigh of oh i'm doing the work you know like what have you just been <laughs> like you've never not like like you can't just always do the work yeah i guess a part of me feels exhausted by that like the other question would be is this project really about work is it really the is it really regarding um, an increase in the amount of doing or actually learning what it means to not do I mean, really, that's a really a fundamental way to kind of shift. What does that even mean to not do? Because that's a, most people might say, that feels really uncomfortable. What do you mean not do? Yeah. What would it feel like to take an observational stance, to not speak and listen, to really watch instead of take action? I mean, these are, this is non-work, right? That might actually have a better impact on, or a different impact on yeah. your experience. So. The thing that gets me, and, and I would think this would resonate with a lot of people, would, would be. I know what to do, you know, like I have access to my cell phone, which is in my pocket, which has all of the answers to humanity, you know, and, but I still make decisions that are, are suboptimal for my mind and my body and my life. And, you know, like, it's like, it's, I still press the buttons, Yeah, you know, so that, you know, that's, that's the kind when I'm, when I'm kind of talking about the, the deeper iceberg and the implicit stuff, it's like, what's the, the deeper governor there and and perhaps the way to work with that is just keep on chipping away at the surface and and eventually that kind of through osmosis starts to change you to deeper well but levels. i'm saying i'm i'm actually addressing the same point and i'm saying there's a very straightforward way to try it is to watch watch your mind watch yourself even if you're talking about i can get on my phone and it has access i have access to every everything that i could solve but i still sometimes make faulty decisions it's like Take that to granular moment by moment view. Usually we can't do that as we're doing it, but we can we can try. So even like something as simple as scrolling for too long on Instagram and feeling icky about it. You know, it's like, well, how do I not do that? You know, I know I shouldn't. It feels icky after I'm done. How do I stop myself? Oh, I should just throw my phone in the trash. It's not gonna work. Okay, I gotta break up with my phone. I have no technology over the weekend. Probably not gonna work either. So the answer is gonna be something that people may not find satisfying, but is more actually more doable in the long run, which is pay attention to every moment that you are interfacing with your technology. So notice the urge to pick up the phone. Notice the face recognition unlocking it for you. Notice you pressing on the button. Notice you notice whose website you go to, whatever you do. If you're really there with it, even if you don't say, I'm, I'm not going to do anything differently, I'm just going to check out what I do. It will start shifting the way you do. So I'm saying that it's not that it's either or, but the observational stance that we can take toward our own life, I think will give us a lot more answers and more choice points than we probably uh, allow for right now. Yeah, I agree. I want to take a quick moment to chat with you about CBD. I get asked all the time what brand of CBD I recommend. Honestly, I get approached all the time to work with different CBD companies, but looking at their ingredients and quality of their product, they rarely pass the test. Truth is, most CBD products are kind of so-so. They're extremely low quality, making them completely ineffective, yet extremely expensive. That's why I've never promoted a CBD brand before, but I recently found a brand that I love and would recommend over and over again. That brand is Eaton Hemp. So if you're overwhelmed by all the different brands and types of CBD out there, I would just head over to eatonhemp.com slash align, grab yourself a bottle of their CBD oil. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P.com forward slash align. Use the code align 
for a sweet 20% off your purchase. I personally use their regular strength. They also have extra strength if you need a little extra boost. Again, head over to eatonhemp.com slash align and uh, use align code for 20% off. Plus, if you do not like their product, they will give you your money back 100% guarantee for 30 days. I also want to thank Bio Optimizers. If you struggle with sleep at all, supplementing with magnesium is a no-brainer. I promise you, after one month of supplementing with Biopterous Magnesium Breakthrough, you will notice a drastic difference in the quality of your sleep. You'll fall asleep faster. You'll stay asleep. Plus, without quality sleep, it doesn't matter what you're eating or what workouts you're doing. You'll never reach the level of health and fitness you want to reach. And per mentioned in relation to EMFs with our last episode, magnesium is a very supportive supplement to mitigate some of the harmful effects of EMF. BioOptimizers gives you a full-spectrum magnesium supplement, which most brands on the shelf do not. That is why I exclusively use BioOptimizers only. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to magbreakthrough.com slash podcast and use the code ALIGN10 to save 10% when you try magnesium breakthrough. And one more thing, for limited time, Biooptimizers is giving away free bottles of their best-selling products, P3OM and Masszymes with select purchases. So go to magbreakthrough.com slash alignpodcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com forward slash alignpodcast. Now to get yourself an exclusive 10% discount and a chance to win more than $50 worth of supplements for free. All right, back to the podcast. How about cigarettes? And, and like very, very apparent addictions like that. Because I, I, one of the pieces of advice that I've heard that I found interesting and I, I kind of align with, I've never, well, that's not true. I was addicted to cigarettes like maybe 12 years ago or something, but it's been, it doesn't really feel part of me anymore. But it's just that when you're smoking your cigarette, smoke the shit out of it. Like be with 100% of it, feel it hitting your lungs, like feel the texture of the paper in your fingers, like don't bypass it. If you're going yeah. to do it, do it all the way. And it's like, I, I wonder if perhaps there's something to that, like we're kind of getting away with something or we 80% do a thing because we have a guilt, which perhaps that's baked in from maybe religion or some kind of cultural indoctrination, like having a guilt around the things that we do. But it, what do you think about? Well, even just what you just said, I mean, it's not even about, it's 100%, maybe do it in the same way you always do it, but pay attention to every aspect of the full experience of smoking. And when you objectively have people do this, and this is very common for mindfulness-based smoking cessation programs, is applying that mindful orientation toward an automatic behavior. And the same way I was saying to do with, you know, your your maybe my uh, tendency to scroll more than I want to sometimes. When you do that, you start realizing like, ooh, this feels kind of gross or this tastes bad. The actual taste of the cigarette when it's first in my mouth and the, the kind of smoky flavor is gross. So you start having more of a of a, an evaluative quality regarding something that you probably were just not in it was not in your conscious awareness, and then that might loosen up your your orientation toward wanting to change something. So I think it's the same approach, but again, even if you change nothing about your action, adding that awareness component in will shift what probably will end up happening over the long term. Yeah, would you be open to defining the default mode network? Oh, sure. I think that's a, become like a popular, maybe maybe since Michael Pollan's book or, you know, but I've, I've heard that that term thrown around a lot. Yeah. I'd be curious yeah. your, your, what, the, what the default mode network is. Sure. So, you know, just start off like this is something that comes up through like the history of neuroimaging. We had this in the early, early days. Now I'll, I'll try to make the journey quick. In the very early days. Or not. I, I, okay. I'm happy for the roundabout journey. Yeah, <laughs> <please>. <laughs> so... 
In the early days of brain imaging, we were just trying to figure out what the heck's going on. Does this tool work in the way that we think it should? So like I said before, you know, in, in sort of the longer term history of neuroscience, most of our information regarding how the brain was organized and how it functions was through stroke and lesion. Like if somebody had a big hole in a per- particular part of their head, what could they not do? And so we wanted to get a reality check. Like are the brain regions that are active when we have people do certain kinds of things in the scanner aligned with what our prior stroke and lesion work suggests. And one of those was when people are doing attentionally demanding tasks, do we see the frontal lobes activate and the parietal lobes activate? And and so that was what was done. You go into the scanner, you have participants do attentionally demanding tasks, seeing little screen in front of them and pressing buttons with a a magnetically appropriate joystick or, or console. And you'd have five minute or 10 minute blocks where they're doing something very attentionally demanding, like a little video game they play where they have to really focus. And then you say, okay, just rest now. And then you give another 10 minutes to play. And they say, just rest now. So we had these, what's called a block design where you had five minutes of, or let's say 10 minutes of task, 10 minutes of rest, 10 minutes of task, 10 minutes of rest. And the way you could see what brain regions were active is just look at the activity during the task and subtract away everything that's going on during rest because a lot of the stuff would be overlapping. And it was very exciting. This tool works. We see the frontal lobes light up when there's intentionally demanding activity that's required. And you saw that over and over again. But then people realized, oh, this is weird. There's this other network, this other set of regions that is more active when you tell people to rest. It's like, what is that? Rest is supposed to be like the, the baseline, the nothing, the neutral. And so people started asking, what is it? What is it that you're doing when we tell you to rest? And, you know, undergrads would be like, oh, I'm t- thinking about how boring this is. Or like, when is it going to be over? I'm so glad I'm getting paid. Gosh, what did I sign up? Why did I sign up for this? Like, they're going on and on with a variety of answers. But the, the common theme is the central character in all of these meanderings is them. It's self-related. So people started joking that maybe we shouldn't call it rest. We should call it rapid, ever-present, self-related thinking. Because that's actually what they're doing. They're thinking about themselves when you put them in the, in the scanner and say rest. Which then we come to realize, oh. Actually, when you interrogate self-related processing, internal attention, even memory for episodic you know, incidents that have happened in your life, it activates that exact same network. So in some sense, the default mode is, is shorthanded as, that is the default mode, by the way, the network that was activated during rest. The default mode means the network that tends to be activated by default. Like if you tell people to do nothing, that's what's going to happen. The set of processes that are engaged are really these sort of self-focused, self-related sort of mental meandering or mind-wandering uh, types of functions that exist. And we're able to change the structural architecture of our brains and the functioning of these these networks through the way that we point our mind, our consciousness. Yeah. Well, I would say for sure, moment to moment, if you do a task that's intentionally demanding, you're going to get you know the central executive network to be active. If you say, don't do that and just let your mind go, um, you're going to get the default mode to be active. And even when you have people do intentionally demanding tasks and they mess up, they make mistakes. You can see that actually in those moments, what happened was the d- default mode was more active. They were offline. They went internal. So it started, you know, it's, it is the case that these networks tend to be antagonistic. So you can't be outwardly attentive and inwardly attentive at the same time. It's one or the other. Um, and the relationship and the fluidity with which you can toggle back and forth says a lot about your, your functional ability. And those mistakes are what catalyze neuroplasticity, from my understanding. No, not really. I mean, neuroplasticity is this view that, you know, the, it's a very fundamental view that the brain can change based on experience. 
So, and that experience could be continuing to ruminate every time something bad happens to you, your brain's going to change in that direction, continuing to worry. I mean, it's neutral. It's agnostic with regard to the direction of the change. It's just the brain's capacity to change. Would it change without a mistake though? Because if everything's working, you know, up to, up to snuff, up to par, then what would be the reason for neuroplasticity? It doesn't have anything to do with mistakes. It really is regarding what processes you're engaging in. So if you tend to do something that's very attentionally demanding and very attentionally taxing over and over again, the brain networks that support that are going to become stronger. So it's not about an individual mistake. It's really regarding the kind of process that you do on a continual basis. It's very much like you know physical activity. It's like if you tend to do an upper body workout, your, your calf muscles are not going to look stronger. Whatever it is that you exercise and engage is going to be the thing that looks more robust in terms of its healthfulness. I mean, healthfulness meaning brain circuits that are, you can see me do the air quotes, but healthfulness just means those brain networks are going to be more active. They're going to be cortically thicker, more interconnected, functional with more fluidity. It doesn't mean they're good for you. Because like I said, if you decide every day, I'm going to ruminate for three hours, you're going to be like the world's best ruminator or worrier. And the circuits of your brain that are responsible for that kind of functioning will look more active. And they may even look more robust in terms of their their, their structure. But even from a, from a physical perspective, if you're doing a similar activity that your body kind of like learns, you'll, you'll plateau with that and you won't be having the same gains until you introduce confusion, which ultimately is mistakes. And so from, I'm not disagreeing, this is, I've, I heard this from, um, I've, been, I've been listening to a lot, of a buddy called Dr. Andrew Huberman, and he's got a, a podcast where he talks all about this stuff. But so I wonder what he was suggesting was mistakes potentiate neuroplasticity because it forces the body to change. I wonder from your perspective, what, what would potentiate neuroplasticity to a greater level? Would there be any like nutritional things a person could be, t could be taking? Could it be a, t a type of training, a type of thinking? Yeah, I just want to kind of demystify neuro neuroplasticity because this conversation is changing my brain. You know, anything you do impacts the brain. Now, will it be enduring? Maybe, you know, maybe what I, what you say to me will significantly change kind of the, the background processing that happens. So now all of a sudden I'm more likely to think in a certain direction which then ultimately leads to a structural change in my brain, which is the neuroplasticity that you're talking about. So there's always this structure-function relationship. Mistake is a very, we're speaking about judgmental. It's, it's we're, I don't know what a mistake is, right? It may be something disruptive that, that shifts the way you typically function. And maybe that's what you mean when you say mistake. It may, may, it may be that this conversation introduced concepts to me that I'd never been exposed to. So now I'm more likely to think in a different way. But there's no, there doesn't have to be anything wrong for that to occur. I think the exciting part of neuroplasticity as it relates to mindfulness and healthfulness is that we know neuroplasticity can occur for the worse when you have, and, and even for the better, you know, not having to do with any kind of contemplative practice. So if you're going back to the thing that I was telling you about at the outset regarding my personal history, we know that if somebody has brain injury, there are going to be neuroplastic changes. Things are going to get reorganized. If they exercise their mind to try to recover function, that's also possible. The thing that became exciting, especially with the tools of neuroimaging, is we could now look to say, can you continue exercising in a particular way and see improvements beyond just steady state healthfulness? Could you optimize certain brain networks? Could you, for example, if you have a propensity to do a lot of mind wandering and the default mode is active often and it ends up being a lot of rumination and worry and self-related focus, can you dial that down by a certain kind of contemplative practice that teaches you to notice that mind wandering and and bring your attention back to what you're trying to do? I mean, that's essentially the kind of questions we're asking. And the answer looks like it's yes, you can. You actually can 
train the brain to function differently. But I don't know if I would say there has to be something wrong with an event. It's just expanding the scope of the repertoire of what you might do that that may shift things. Yeah. And the language I heard wasn't mistake. It was it was error, which still you'd have to you'd have to, you know, define what is what does error mean. But an error could be like falling off balance, you know, and your body has to correct itself. And, the, and this is where maybe the relationships between body and mind and at least brain neuroplasticity and physical plasticity, you know, uh, biological plasticity and muscles, et cetera, it may be different. It may be that there may be some ways in which they don't function the same way because it's a probabilistic approach to the brain shifting in this way. It's not a one and done. Structural changes don't just happen through a one-time exposure to anything. It takes a while. And so is this your latest book, Peak Mind, which comes out, when, when is it coming out? It's not out yet. October 19th. October 19th. So we'll put this out. We, we can put this out probably right around that date. Is that, what is the, like the, what's the, the nuts and bolts of Peak Mind? Does it get into some of these conversations? I haven't, I haven't had the opportunity to read it yet. Yeah, absolutely. It gets into a lot of these conversations, but really the intention was we've learned a lot over the last 15 years of work in my lab regarding the kinds of the power of our ability to pay attention, the vulnerabilities of this very precious brain capacity, and how certain kinds of people in certain professions that experience high stress over long periods of time are vulnerable to these these problematic exposures. And, you know, I had no idea when I was writing the book that we'd end up having a global pandemic and all of us would be in these volatile and uncertain kind of situations. And then we've come to some really practical solutions. You know, oftentimes people in the context of knowing that I do work in mindfulness would be like, well, I don't have time for that. Or I I can't go away on a one one month retreat. You know, how much do I have to actually do for it to make a difference? Well, when we're talking about service members and firefighters, that had life or death consequences. If their attention lapsed and they were about to be deployed, you don't want that kind of mistake. So we became very interested in like a rigorous approach to get us to a minimum effective dose for these high stress populations. And and we've established that. And that actually is part of the subtitle of the book of 12 minutes a day. So what we found is that under high stress for certain kinds of groups, practicing as little as 12 minutes a day of, of mindfulness practices protected attention from this, these vulnerabilities. So the intention for writing the book was to offer that to more people, to offer these very practical solutions from the framework of the brain science of of attention. And I would say most people that have been writing about mindfulness or studying mindfulness or practicing mindfulness are not typically thinking about it from an attentional perspective. So it was a new new way in that I was offering. And is the 12 minutes, is there is there something magical about that number? Is there some minimum effective dose to, to 12 minutes? So that is what I'm saying is the minimum effective dose. So in our studies, what we did is we let we told people to practice 30 minutes a day. Most of them did not, but then we got their honest account of how much they were actually practicing. And over a four to eight week interval, what we found was only those that practiced 12 minutes or more a day were actually benefiting with regard to their attention. So less than 12 was not really resulting in a benefit. So that was sort of a critical point. And then we did other studies in which we offered 12 minutes only. Many more people did this versus asking them to do 30 minutes a day. So it became a practical solution. And also 12 minutes held up. It's like, yeah, when they do that three to five days a week, it's beneficial. And then the other part was also interesting, which is the more they did beyond that, the more they benefited. So very much like physical activity. Do you know, I feel like this would be really hard to to be able to measure, but I wonder if there's some baseline of, of seated, silent, you know, introspective, observing your breath kind of meditation a person can do to get to a point where they have the momentum to integrate a more intentional, attentive, you know, lifestyle. 
So it's kind of like their life becomes a meditation. Do you know what I'm saying? I wonder if there's like, I wonder if there's, there's, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that if we could quantify what an integrative, attentive life is, yeah, sure, <laughs> then we might be able to get a handle on it. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is when you ask people, like, how do you feel different? You were asking me that at the start. How do you feel different after you started practicing meditation? That is kind of what people tend to report. It's like, I'm more here. I'm more embodied. I'm more connected. My thinking is clearer. I'm more aware of when I'm, I'm not here. Like all these things that suggest it's not about being an amazing breath follower. It's about translating it into your life so that it is more attentive to everything that you're trying to accomplish. Yeah. Have you witnessed or experienced anything that you would deem to be a miracle in your life or some spontaneous shift in the brain or in the body or in some form of dis-ease in a person's world? Or I probably wouldn't characterize something as a miracle in that way. But yeah, nothing's like like totally weird comes to mind. But there's certainly people I've talked to where they'd say events have occurred that don't make sense, right? And people I trust where I'm like, what? Things like being able to see events and predict the mind of another in another time and place with a lot of precision or connections to someone else's uh, the inner workings of somebody else's mind, which you would not be privy to. And when those kinds of things happen, it gives me deep pause because it makes me realize, and I keep this humility front and center in my mind, like we don't have a freaking clue how any of this works. We are barely understanding it. And there, there are points and, and events that occur that make you very concerned that our model for how reality occurs, how the brain functions, what consciousness is, may be completely off. So I don't shy away from that. I, I respect that, that that is going to be my limitation. So, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a student of that journey. Yeah. There's something that I got from Richard Davidson, who is someone that you studied, you know, with a, a while ago from, from listening to. Yeah. He's the one that said the term meditation that kind of shifted me to opening up about it. Right. And one of the things that a, a quote or a paraphrase quote from him was that we're wired to learn compassion the same way that we're wired to learn linguistics or language. And I think that that I wonder with when we have the sensation of like telepathy, you know, when we're there's 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 one kind of telepathy that I think that happens when you're like in a room with a person, you know, and you see you're gathering, you know, millions of bits of information based off of their, their postural patterns and their facial gestures and maybe dilation of their pupils and just all these little things that consciously you might not even notice, but subconsciously like, oh, you're like, and I, yeah. I think that the, the, there's a really interesting thing that happens that we kind of get played by each other like we attune to each other and if you can be and i think that part of that like that's the way that you learn language as well you learn language just by being around language you know and i think it's it's such an interesting thing to to open ourselves up to be able to feel each other and i don't know i don't think i actually have a question i just think that's really interesting no i think it's very true <laughs> i just i just did a a talk for the dalai lama summit and the topic was compassion and i was struck by the fact that they wanted an, an attention researcher to talk about compassion because it's not central to what I study. But one thing that is absolutely true in everything you just said is that if you're not paying attention at some level, the chances of you extending that kind of care are less. So my topic was essentially that kindness and compassion begin by paying attention. It's the first act of actually sh extending that kind of care to another person. Hmm. That's so beautiful. Well, I'm so excited to read your book. I'm so sorry that I haven't I haven't read it. Yeah, I wasn't sent not to make any excuses, but I wasn't sent a copy and it's not out yet. Oh, no. If there was some way to, to get a hold of it, I would have loved to check sure. it out. Yeah, I, I can't wait. Yeah, to yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'll make sure that happens. Can you give a, a, a general, I know you already kind of, kind of did, but a general summary of, of like, who's the book for what's, what's the, like who, who should get the book? Right. The book is really for everyone. I mean, whether it's a somebody who's in a high stress job or feels like they have a high stress life, um, you know, for personal or family demands, uh, who really wants to deal with some kind of crisis of attention. And I frankly think that unfortunately, that's too many of us and use the tools of mindfulness in a way that can bring about more fulfillment and more productivity. Yeah. Now, last thing, well, maybe the last thing. Do you have to go right at four? You have a hard. I do. A hard, okay, okay. All right. Well, then never mind. We'll just wrap up. Maybe we can do this again because I. This is my. I really would like you to read the book. I'm so sorry you didn't get a copy yet. Oh no, it's all good. But this is my favorite type of conversation. So I, I so greatly appreciate you making time to. Oh to, yeah, this was a lot of fun. You asked such great questions. It's easy. Oh good, that's, that's <laughs> great. Yeah, your well, your responses they like get all the wheels running. Um, where should <laughs> so where should people go from here then? Where's the best best location? Yeah, they can find out about my book and my research at amishi.com, A-M-I-S-H-I.com. Great. And uh, book is on, is Amazon a likely place to grab it? Yeah. And you can find all the different links for local bookstores, et cetera, on the same website. Beautiful. And your social media is? Amishi Ja. Perfect. I love the name. <laughs> all right. Um, I greatly appreciate you. This was so beautiful. Thank you so much for making time. And I'm sure we both had some neuroplastic changes throughout this. <laughs> I feel like I did. I, I grew. Like, <laughs> we're growing. <laughs> all right i appreciate you very much thank you thank you thank you thank you all for tuning in over and out thank you guys so much for tuning in to that conversation once again i am so grateful for the opportunity to get to communicate with world-class thought leaders such as dr amishi if you want to share this conversation you want to tag myself on the instagram you can tag me at align podcast or you can tag dr amishi at amishi pjha also, if you guys are interested in incorporating more fitness and wellness and mobility into your travel or your home life, I recommend something that we call the Total Strength Kit, which is something that I devised myself probably a year and a half ago. And it is a compilation of four different weight resistance bands, a hip band, a door anchor. Also comes in a convenient traveling case for you to be able to exercise and mobilize those sweet, sultry joints and muscles of your anywhere you are at any time total package weighs maybe three pounds or so it's very flexible obviously you can throw it into any travel bag and it's literally something that i non-negotiable will bring with me on every single trip and also get a free workout guide and mobility guide it comes along with it as well all that stuff can be found at alignpodcast.com slash shop that's alignpodcast.com forward slash shop if you want to get yourself the total strength kit all right thank you guys so much for tuning in thanks for uh your support appreciate you big kisses i'll see you next week Bye.